Well, today's message is entitled, Walk in the Spirit. And as you can see, we're talking a lot about the Holy Spirit today. If you've been with us, you know that the book of Romans is actually a letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Rome to explain in depth what the gospel is, what the good news is. Paul spent the first few chapters showing how we are all sinners and therefore we are all guilty before God. Then Paul showed that we do not earn salvation by our own works, but we can only receive the gift of salvation by faith in God. Having faith in God means that you trust God to do what he promised. Paul explained that the moment we do this, the moment we trust in Jesus, he credits us with righteousness. We're justified in his sight. In Romans chapter 6, Paul explained that the believer in Jesus has been set free from sin. We're more than simply heaven bound. God does not adopt us as sinners and then leave us that way. But God changes us. He makes us more and more like him. And he doesn't change us so that we can be saved, but he changes us because we are saved. Now, last week in Romans chapter 7, Paul confessed a struggle within himself. In Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 21, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Paul says, I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So even though Paul is a Christian, even though he's already been justified in God's sight, he's counted as righteous, Paul says, I still find myself struggling in my sin. I still find myself falling short. And Paul declares that the solution is not in the law. The solution is not found in us. The solution is not try harder to be the Christian that you're supposed to be. But the solution is to walk in the Spirit. And that's what Romans 8 is all about. And so let's pick up in Romans chapter 8, in verses 1 through 11, we read about another blessing of being in Christ. <clears throat> Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the to the Spirit. I don't know about you, but for me, this is a huge verse. It's a very important verse. Paul says that because we are in Christ, there is no condemnation for us. Now, I want us to just imagine what it would be like if we were taken to court and tried for our sin. God is the judge, right? And Satan is our accuser. He's the prosecuting attorney. And the fact is that we're all guilty. And Satan can point at any number of God's laws and show that we fall short. Satan could say, it is against God's law to 
to lie, to steal, to lust, and to hate. And that alone right there would be enough to convict me and condemn me. Now, since Jesus is a true and a just judge, he correctly declares all of us as guilty and deserving judgment. And for anyone who was without Jesus, that's the end of the story. You see, anyone who was without Jesus stands condemned to eternity in hell and separation from God. That's the condemnation that we're all under apart from Jesus. That's bad news. And if you want to take notes today, that's your first fill in the blank there in your note sheet. But for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have trusted Him as Lord and Savior, the trial doesn't end there. For Christians, Jesus then declares, you are guilty. You deserve judgment. But although you're guilty, I've paid for your sin on the cross. There's no judgment left for them. There is no condemnation. The case is dismissed. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13. He says, And you, talking about all believers, you being dead in your trespasses or sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that is, the law, which was contrary to us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them, in it. You see, it wasn't just that Jesus died for our sins, but that Jesus had also lived a perfect and sinless life. In doing so, in living a life without sin, Jesus fulfilled the law that we could not. He fulfilled the law that we broke. That's the handwriting of requirements that was against us. And having fulfilled it, Jesus then takes it out of the way. The very laws that Satan points to as he condemns us, Jesus has fulfilled and done away with having nailed them to the cross. And so all of Satan's evidence has disappeared. There's nothing left that he can accuse us of. And so the court case is over. We've been cleared of all charges because Jesus paid our debt. No other arguments from the prosecution will be heard. No other witnesses can testify. And so what does Satan do? Does Satan run away and leave us alone? I wish, right? But he doesn't. Absolutely not. You see, we read in Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 9. It says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Satan is called here the accuser of the brethren. 
And he used to accuse us before God day and night. That's, that was his favorite thing to do. And it wasn't hard. All he had to do was say, well, look at what Jared did today. Here's a law. Yep, broken. Here's another law. And he could just go through the list. And he shows that we fall short. But since God won't listen to Satan now, because our court case is over if you've trusted in Jesus, he's paid for our sin, Satan, he now comes after you and I. You see, Satan comes along to us and he says, hey, Jared, remember that thing that you did five years ago? That was really bad. Hey, hey Jared, remember what you did last week? You, you probably shouldn't go to church let alone teach the word. I mean, you're pretty awful. And all of a sudden, the Christian who has been justified and forgiven by Jesus feels condemned and separated from Jesus. And that is why we need Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, if you are in Christ, you are free from guilt and shame. But it's not because we're innocent. It's because we're in Christ. And God has paid for our sin in full. Now, it's important that we understand the difference between condemnation and conviction. Your next fill in the blank says, For believers, condemnation is a lie of Satan trying to drag us down with unnecessary burdens. Condemnation is a lie of Satan. Because we cannot be condemned because we're saved by Christ. Now, notice I say this is for believers, because if you don't have Christ, you haven't trusted in Him, then your condemnation is true until the moment you trust in Jesus and your sins are washed away just like the rest of us. Now, on the other hand, for believers, conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit, helping us to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. You see, when we are convicted, it's because the Holy Spirit is inside of us and we're partaking of something that God doesn't agree with. If we could hear God's voice in the midst of our conviction, He might say, hey, I'm in you and you're in me, but what you just said or what you just did or what you're partaking in right now, I don't like that. That's, that's not who I am. And so the Holy Spirit's convicting us. And all of a sudden, it's like a flag is thrown in our heart. And God is just saying, mm, you probably shouldn't have said that. Mm, you probably should turn this off. This movie's taken a turn for the worse, or whatever it may be. And that's the Holy Spirit convicting us. Here's another fill in the blank. Condemnation puts the emphasis on me. Condemnation puts the emphasis on me, on my faults, which make us feel not good enough. When we're feeling condemned, we're focused on how pathetic we are, on all of our failures, on all the ways that we don't measure up, and we're focused on me, 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 me. Look at how I fall short. And then brings the feelings of guilt that say, I don't, 
I don't think I'm going to go to life group this week. I'm just not feeling it. I don't think I'm going to make it to church this week. I'm just not feeling it. Guys, that's the condemnation. That's the lie of the enemy. Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. On the other hand, conviction puts the emphasis on Jesus. When we're convicted, we're reminded about who Jesus is, how he lived perfectly, and how he died on the cross for us. And so when we're feeling convicted, we're saying, Lord, you don't have this for me. This isn't what you want me to be. And so I'm going to repent from this and turn back to you. And so, if you as a believer are reminded of your past mistakes, don't let it condemn you into hiding from God. Let your, fail, your failures cannot take away your position before God. Let me say that again. Your failures cannot take away your position before God. Because your success never earned your position before God. You see, our position before God is based on His work on the cross, not on our work as a believer. And so, let our mistakes remind us of how much we need Jesus. Let our memories of our past failures drive us back into God's loving arms. I love Paul's approach in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, where Paul says, not that I have already attained. Paul says, I'm not perfect. I'm not going to be perfect until I'm there in heaven. But not that I've already attained or I'm already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press forward towards the goal for the, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What a great response to remembering our past failures, forgetting what is behind and striving toward those things which are ahead, pressing on towards Jesus. Now, let's get back to our text in Romans 8. We're already in verse 2. Can you believe it? For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Paul talks about two laws or covenants here. The law of the Spirit is the gospel, the good news that Jesus has taken our judgment upon himself on the cross. The law of sin and death is the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. And Paul explains that we're not under both laws. But in Jesus, if you've received him as your Savior, you've been set free from the law of Moses, which condemns. You're free from that law. 4, verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Now pause right there. Paul says that the law of Moses was weak through the flesh. Remember, the law is like an x-ray. The x-ray cannot fix our broken bones, nor can the x-ray keep our bones from breaking. It can only reveal whether they're broken or not. Paul says there's nothing wrong with the law of Moses, 
But the law was incapable of fixing our sin. The law was unable to keep us from sin. All it could do was reveal our sin. The problem wasn't with the law. The problem was that we didn't measure up. The law was weak through our flesh, through our sin. And so again, verse 3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The law couldn't declare us as righteous because we aren't. We're guilty sinners. And so God became human, became flesh. God then died in our place on the cross and God rose again, conquering death so that whoever believes in Him can be declared righteous or justified because now our sins have been paid in full. Notice the last part of verse 4 there. Paul describes Christians as those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He continues this thought into verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. When the Bible talks about our flesh, it means our natural, selfish desires. The flesh is the true you apart from Jesus. Paul points out that there is a difference between living for the flesh and living for the Spirit. Living for the flesh asks, what do I want? What do I want? That's what living for the flesh asks. But living for the Spirit asks, what does God want? What does God want? Now, somebody might say, well, why can't I be a Christian but still do what I want? And Paul answers this in verse 6. Paul says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So Paul gives three reasons why we cannot be Christians that still live selfishly. First, to live for the flesh is death, spiritual death. Second, the flesh itself is actively opposed to God. They're opposites. And third, living in the flesh cannot please God. Now, even beyond that, we recognize that to be a Christian means to follow Christ. So we cannot follow Christ and follow our flesh. They're mutually exclusive. That's like trying to put your faith in Jesus without repenting, without turning away from your selfish desires. It doesn't work. Remember when Jesus addressed the woman who was caught in adultery? Jesus did not say, neither do I condemn you. Go your way. But 
In John chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, Jesus wasn't just sending her on her way, but he was telling her, Look, I don't want to condemn you. Repent. Turn away. And don't walk in this sin anymore. And so a true believer in Jesus does not live according to the flesh, but lives according to the Spirit. And this is where Paul heads next in verse 9. Verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. You see, the moment you trust in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of God, as Paul calls it in here, comes and dwells in you. We read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, where it says, In Him, in Jesus, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. You see, the Holy Spirit is the seal or that stamp of authenticity on every believer. The Holy Spirit seals us and shows that we are Christians, that we are genuinely saved. And immediately, the Holy Spirit begins to change our hearts, changing our desires. And so a believer cannot remain in the flesh like they were before salvation. A believer cannot continue living the same old way because the Holy Spirit is now dwelling inside of them. Now, Paul continues in verse 9, and he says, Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. You see, if you're a believer you have the Holy Spirit in you. If you're not a believer, you don't have the Holy Spirit in you. And without the Holy Spirit, you cannot walk in the Spirit, which means you can only walk in the flesh. Now, when I say a non-believer can only walk in the flesh, I'm not saying that a non-Christian is incapable of doing good or of serving others. Remember, we were all created in the image of God. Now, we have fallen from that image. Genesis chapter 3, we have fallen from the image of God that we were created in, but there are still fingerprints on us that show God as our creator. And so, when a non-believer chooses to love somebody who doesn't love them back, or chooses to serve somebody selflessly, That just reminds us that we were created in the image of God. But what I am saying is that even when a non-believer does a good work, they're still doing it in their own flesh, by their own power, not by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul just told us in Romans chapter 8, verse 8, that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And therefore, their only hope is is to become a Christian by repenting of the flesh and surrendering to Jesus. Now, someone might ask, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? You might also ask, 
how do I know if I'm saved? It's the same question, right? Because if we have the Holy Spirit, we are saved. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're not saved. And so here's three questions to ask yourself. Number one, has the Spirit led me to Jesus? Has the Spirit led me to Jesus? If you haven't recognized that you are a guilty sinner and you haven't trusted in Jesus as your Savior, then you don't have the Holy Spirit in you and you're not saved. There's a difference between knowing that you need to get right with God and actually receiving the gift. Here's the next question. Do I want to be more godly? Do I want to be more godly? If the Holy Spirit is in you, then He gives you the desire to be like Him. God gives us that drive and that hunger, that desire. It's not a desire to have others think better of us. It's not a desire for us to be more blessed on this earth, but it's a desire to simply be more like God because He really is our Savior. The third question is, has my life changed? Has my life changed? If the Holy Spirit is in you, then you should be able to look back at your life and see spiritual growth. Now, please note, spiritual growth is not knowing more Bible or knowing more doctrine. That's not spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is becoming more like Jesus. Spiritual growth is, I used to use swear words all the time, but now I hardly ever say them. That's spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is, I used to only care about myself, but now I genuinely care about other people. This is weird. That's called spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is, I used to be judgmental and legalistic. I thought I was better than everybody else. But now I have grace for others just like Jesus has grace for me. That's spiritual growth. And so when we look back at our lives and we can see, wow, I used to be really bad, now I'm just bad. That's spiritual growth. And we say, it wasn't anything that I did. I didn't go from negative three to negative two, but the Lord did that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. That's evidence. And so as you look at those three questions, if you answer yes to all three of them, then you have evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. You have evidence that you are genuinely saved. That's amazing. If you look at those three questions and you can't answer yes to all three of them, then go back to the first question. Has the Spirit led you to Jesus? If you're not sure, choose today. Recognize, say, Lord, I am a sinner and I deserve judgment. But you came and died in my place. Lord, I ask that you would save me, not because I'm good, but because you're good. And you've now made that first step. And right then and there, before anything changes, before you stop doing those horrible things that you might struggle with, right then and there, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. 
And he begins to change your heart. He begins to give you the desire to be more like God. And as you continue to seek after him, you'll begin to look back at your life and say, wow, Lord, look at what you're doing. Look at how you're changing me and making me more like you. Back to our text. Paul says the Holy Spirit is in us. Look at verse 10. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. In other words, a Christian will still physically die. Physical death is a result of the fall back in Genesis chapter 3. But because the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we will be resurrected. God gives us eternal life. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that same Holy Spirit dwells in us as believers. Here's Paul's point. If you have trusted in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you will not walk in the flesh like an unbeliever. And because the Holy Spirit dwells in you, you will resurrect to eternal life. That's amazing, right? The reason Paul explains this is because the Holy Spirit is far superior to the law. The Holy Spirit can do what the law could not. The law could only reveal our sin. It gave us no power over our sin. The Holy Spirit gives us power to break free from our sin. The Holy Spirit gives us that power to change. And so before we close today, I want us to take a practical look at how do we walk in the Spirit? How do we walk in the Spirit? What does that mean? What does it look like? Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. We've mentioned it again, and Paul tells us yet again here in this passage that the flesh and the spirit are opposed to one another. They can't go together. It's like a battle raging within. For example, look at Kronk here. We've all seen variations of this, with the angel and demon on each shoulder, each trying to sway the person's decision. But in reality, it's not an angel and a demon. It's the spirit and the flesh. It's the good you and the bad you, both wanting to make the decision. This is the battle that Paul referred to back in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. He said, I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. A few verses later in verse 18, He said, and I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. And then Romans 7, 24, he says, oh, what a miserable person I am. 
Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Paul, a genuine believer, filled with the Holy Spirit, found himself struggling in sin, struggling in his flesh. More rules can't help. Paul couldn't just say, all right, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and then I'll be better. No. He wanted to do those things, but when it came down to it, he found that he couldn't. He didn't have the strength to do it. And so here's the solution. Feed the Spirit, starve the flesh. Feed the Spirit, starve the flesh. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, he says, do not be deceived. Now, just real fast, I'm interrupting myself here, but he says this because we are deceived, right? So whatever he's about to say, we often fool ourselves about. And so he says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. If you plant corn, you don't expect tomatoes. Right? You reap what you sow. You're going to get whatever you plant. If we fill our day with crude music, with carnal movies, and with ungodly conversations, why are we surprised? that our thoughts and our words are so filthy. We've been sowing to the flesh. That's why Paul says, don't be deceived. Lord, I don't get it. I've been a Christian for X amount of years, but I'm just still pretty sinful. Well, maybe you're feeding the flesh instead of the Spirit. Maybe you're starving the Spirit instead of starving the flesh. Paul says, don't be deceived. Now, if we imagine Kronk's flesh and spirit again, every day, all day, we're choosing which one we're going to feed. Give a cracker to you, give a cracker to you. And they get bigger or stronger, depending on which one we're feeding. The more we feast on this world, the more that we serve ourselves, the stronger our flesh gets, and the weaker the spirit gets. We're quenching the spirit, And it becomes harder and harder to even hear the Spirit's voice because we haven't been listening. We've been listening to our flesh instead. On the other hand, the more that we feast on God's Word, the more time we spend in prayer or in worship or serving others or in godly fellowship, we're feeding the Spirit and starving the flesh. The spirit gets stronger and the flesh gets weaker. The less we even hear the flesh's voice, it becomes easier and easier to ignore our flesh because we've been starving it. We haven't been giving it what it needs. And so as we continue to feed our spirit and starve the flesh, we begin to see some real progress in those things that we've struggled with in those things that are buried in our heart, that when we see them pop up, we say, well, that's not the real me. Okay, maybe it is. But as we feed the Spirit and starve the flesh, we're going to see that what's deep down in our heart, 
begins to look more and more like Christ and less and less like me, less and less like yourself. Here's your last fill in the blank. Walking in the Spirit is a daily choice, not a one-time decision. Walking in the Spirit is a daily choice. We don't try to grow spiritually by making more rules for ourselves. Instead, we starve the flesh. We feed the Spirit. We keep our eyes on Jesus. And we'll be amazed at what He accomplishes in us and through us. And when He does, God gets all the glory. Because He's the one that did the work. Let's pray. God, we thank You so much for Your Word. God, we thank You that for anyone who is in Christ, there is no condemnation. Lord, maybe there are some here today or listening online who have not yet trusted in You as their Lord and their Savior. Maybe they know they need to get right with You, but they haven't yet made that decision. God, I pray that today they would just look to you and say, Lord, I'm tired of putting this off. I'm tired of doing life in my own flesh. Lord, I want to surrender my life to you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin and giving me the gift of eternal life. God, maybe some of us are here today and we're just feeling condemned. We're feeling condemned about last night. Condemned about 10 years ago. Condemned about 50 years ago. Lord, if we are in You, there is no condemnation left. God, would You help us to cling to the truth of Your Word and to recognize that feelings in our heart do not tell us what is true. But Lord, Your Word tells us what is true. And God, we thank you that if we've trusted in you, there is no condemnation left because you've paid for it in full. God, you've declared us as righteous in your sight. Thank you, Lord. Lord, maybe we're here today and we've just been trying to grow spiritually in our own strength. How frustrating that can be. Because God, we see where we want to be, but we just can't get there. And so, Lord, would you help us to stop looking at where we want to be? To stop looking at where we are? And just to start looking to you? God, to start abiding in you, Jesus. To rest in your word, in prayer, and in worship. To simply say, Lord, I just want to spend more time with you. God, we thank you that as we do that, you're going to bear fruit through us. And you're going to get all the credit through it. And so, Lord, right now, we just surrender to you, whether for the first time or all over again. And we say, Jesus, would you just take us as we are? All of our fears and doubts, all of our failures, all of our guilt and our shame, Lord, would you take us as we are? And God, I say, I surrender to you. You are my Lord and my Savior. Fill us afresh 
with your Holy Spirit. And God, do your work. I'm done doing mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord together. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. If we can pray for you, there's men and women up front that would love to pray with you. Otherwise, on your way out, say hi to somebody else and have a great rest of your day. God bless.